We read the word of God together in Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 through 20. And the Lord spake unto Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be unto you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. Speak ye unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb. According to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. Every man, according to his eating, shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. Ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door post of the houses wherein they shall eat it. And they shall eat the flesh in that night, roast with fire and unleavened bread. And with bitter herbs they shall eat it. Eat not of it raw, nor sodden at all with water, but roast with fire his head with his legs, and with the pertinence thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning, and that which remaineth of it until the morning ye shall burn with fire. And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt this night, and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And the blood shall be to you for a token upon the houses where ye are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, And ye shall keep it a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. Seven days shall ye eat unleavened bread. Even the first day ye shall put away leaven out of your houses. For whosoever eateth leavened bread from the first day until the seventh day, that soul shall be cut off from Israel. And in the first day there shall be an holy convocation. And in the seventh day there shall be an holy convocation to you. No manner of work shall be done in them, save that which every man must eat. That only may be done of you. And ye shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For in this selfsame day have I brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall ye observe this day in your generations by an ordinance forever. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at even, ye shall eat unleavened bread until the one and twentieth day of the month at even. Seven days shall there be no leaven found in your houses. For whosoever eateth that which is leavened, even that soul shall be cut off.
from the congregation of Israel, whether he be a stranger or born in the land. Ye shall eat nothing leavened in all your habitations. Shall ye eat unleavened bread? We read God's word that far. We consider together the teaching of the Heidelberg Catechism this morning in Lord's Day 5. Lord's Day 5 marks the beginning of the second part, the second of the three parts of the Catechism on man's deliverance. Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? God will have his justice satisfied, and therefore we must make this full satisfaction, either by ourselves or by another. Can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? By no means. But on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can there be found anywhere one who is a mere creature able to satisfy for us? None. For first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man hath committed. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. What sort of a mediator and deliverer, then, must we seek for? For one who is very man and perfectly righteous, and yet more powerful than all creatures, that is, one who is also very God. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have seen that according to the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment for the sins which we have committed. Do you believe that about yourself? Do you believe that you deserve temporal and eternal punishment for your sins? We have seen that God created man good in the beginning. He created us after his own image and likeness and placed us in the Garden of Eden. But our first parents, Adam and Eve, fell into sin. They became corrupt and depraved, and therefore we were born into this world with a corrupt and depraved human nature. We were born wholly incapable of doing any good and inclined to all evil. To use the scripture passage that we read today and the context of it, we could say that we were born into this world like the children of Israel in the land of Egypt, slaves to the Pharaoh of this world, slaves to the toiling of sin, incapable of doing anything but sin. And yet we have also seen that God still requires that we obey him perfectly, that we love him 
perfectly, even though we are not able to do it. And God, in his justice, will not allow sin to go unpunished. He will punish the same with temporal and eternal punishment, death. The sinner who knows these things desperately comes with the question of our text, of our Lord's Day. He trembles before the righteous judgment of God. And trembling, he asks, Is there then no way by which we may escape from the punishment that we deserve and be again received into favor with God? That's the question of Lord's Day 5. Understand that the one who asks this question is not assuming that everything is fine. He is not assuming assuming that all is well. He is not coming with a cavalier attitude. He is not coming with a casual shrug of his shoulders and saying, well, okay, if all, all that is true, then what do I have to do? What is the way out? Just tell me. But the person who is asking the question of the Lord's Day is a sinner who is trembling before the righteous judgment of God, knowing himself to be utterly naked, utterly exposed before a righteous God, knowing himself to be blind, lame, dumb, helpless, and incapable of saving himself. And trembling, he asks with desperation, is there then no way by which we may escape? Is there then no way out? Is there then no hope for us? Is there no way by which we may be reconciled to God and escape from his burning wrath? We consider that question this morning and the answer of the Catechism under the theme, The Satisfying of Divine Justice. Notice, first of all, the only way of escape from judgment Notice, secondly, the, our utter inability to satisfy. And notice, finally, our desperate need for God. Is there then no way by which we may escape from the righteous judgment of God and be again received into favor? Let us imagine this morning that we are the children of Israel in the land of Egypt, in our tents, in the land of Goshen, on the eve of the tenth plague. We and our fathers before us have been slaves in the land of Egypt. We have been laboring and toiling under the hot sun of that desert country. We have felt the whip of Pharaoh's taskmasters on our backs as we have labored to build him his treasure cities. And yet, although we have felt the cruel and hard and bitter bondage, yet there is something deep inside us that loves this land of Egypt, that loves the pleasures of sin here in Egypt, and the pleasant life by the Nile River. And yet, at the same time, it's the eve of the tenth plague, and we have just witnessed nine devastating plagues from God upon the land of Egypt. We have seen God come with his mighty hand and his stretched out arm, changing the precious Nile River into blood, sending frogs and lice and flies and locusts 
and hail and fire to devastate the land, the crops, the fields, causing boils and blains upon beasts and man, making life miserable for the Egyptians. And we too have experienced the sufferings and the judgments of God to some extent. And then there was that darkness in the land of Egypt, that pitch black darkness that was so thick that you could feel it. And we observed these judgments of God and we know that we are no better than the Egyptians and ourselves, but that we also deserve these righteous judgments of God. And now we hear that God is going to send one more plague upon the land of Egypt. He is going to send his angel of death to execute the firstborn of man and beast throughout the land. We read in verse 12, I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt will I execute judgment. I am the Lord, and we are the children of Israel on the eve of that tenth plague. And now this question enters into our minds, knowing ourselves to be sinners just like the Egyptians. Is there no way by which we may escape this righteous judgment of God? Is there no way by which we may escape the holy wrath and indignation that God is about to pour forth on the land of Egypt? Is there no way that we, with our children, our firstborn sons and daughters, and the firstborn of our cattle, might escape from the angel of death when it comes and brings swift judgment in the darkness of this night? Is there no way by which we may escape from this miserable land of Egypt, this house of bondage, and be received again into the favor of God, and be led into the promised land of Canaan, flowing with milk and honey to dwell with God there in rest and sweet communion? That's the question. The answer that the Catechism gives to us on the basis of God's word is this. God will have his justice satisfied And therefore, we must make this full satisfaction, either by ourselves or by another. God is a righteous and a holy God, and he will not allow his justice to fall down in the streets. God will not allow his justice to fall to the ground unsatisfied. He will not allow sinners to escape from his righteous judgment without the payment of their debts. He's a righteous God. He will not allow a single soul into his heavenly house of many mansions unless the payment has been made, the ransom to the full. There must be satisfaction. The word satisfaction means to do enough, to do sufficiently in order to meet a certain demand or a certain need. We all understand the meaning of that word, satisfaction. When there is a hunger pain that you feel in your stomach, the way to satisfy that hunger pain is by eating enough food. That's the idea of satisfaction. You meet the need by doing enough. 
We are talking here about the satisfying of divine justice and the divine law. What does God demand? What is necessary from God's perspective? God demands, first of all, the perfect obedience of love. We hear that law of God every single Sunday. We hear the Ten Commandments, and then we hear the summary of that law, and we hear that God requires of us, and he never revokes that requirement, that we love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength, that we render unto him who is worthy the perfect obedience of love, the perfect obedience to all of his commandments. If Adam and Eve had done that in the beginning, they would have continued to live in the garden. They would not have inherited eternal life or merited heaven, but they would have continued to live in the garden with God in the sweetness of the fellowship of his covenant. But Adam failed to render that perfect obedience to God. He fell into sin, and in him we fell into sin and failed to render to him that perfect obedience. But God still requires it. He still commands us to love him perfectly. And God cannot be satisfied until there is rendered unto him that perfect obedience of love, either ourselves or by another. Someone must render unto God the perfect obedience of love, or God cannot be satisfied in his perfect justice. That in the first place. And in the second place, because Adam fell into sin, and we fell into sin. God demands, according to his justice, that there would be a punishment for that sin. And it's the punishment of death. God said, when you eat that fruit, if you eat it, you will surely die in that day. And God does not tell lies. God does not say things lightly or frivolously. He means what he says. There must be the punishment of death for every single sin that is committed. God cannot be satisfied until that punishment is rendered. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden. They became worthy of perishing under the wrath of God, and every single one of their children after them came into the world worthy of perishing under the wrath of God. Every single sin that we commit, every fleeting thought, every idle word, every misstep of our deeds, every single one makes us worthy of the punishment of death. Not only our original, but also our actual sins. And the punishment that God requires is not just the death that we all know we will have at the end of our life. Not just that physical and temporal death, but also the death that will take place in eternity. What the Bible calls the second death. What the Bible refers to as the lake of fire. The everlasting punishment of hell. God cannot be satisfied. His justice is not satisfied until that punishment is meted out for every sin that we have committed. And either we ourselves must suffer that punishment 
or someone else in our place. Is there then no way of escape from this house of bondage? Is there then no way of escape from this miserable land of Egypt where we and our children are slaves to Pharaoh under the hotness of God's wrath, under the threat of the angel of death? Is there no way of reconciliation and entrance into the heavenly land of Canaan? The answer of the catechism, the answer of Scripture, the answer of God is this. I will have my justice satisfied either by you or by another. The only way of escape and reconciliation is the way of the satisfaction of God's justice. There is no other way. The next question that the Catechism asks is the logical one. Can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? First of all, can we satisfy the demand of God that we render to him the perfect obedience of love? Can we do that? By no means. But on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. We cannot render unto God the perfect obedience of love. Why not? Because as we have seen repeatedly, we did not come into this world as a blank slate. We did not come into this world as innocent people with a free will, able to obey all of God's commandments, if we choose to. But we were born into this world as the sons and daughters of Adam, guilty of his sin and polluted with his depravity. We were born into this world as the slaves of Pharaoh. We are the children of Israel in the land of Egypt on the eve of the tenth plague. We are slaves to Pharaoh, trapped in this miserable land of Egypt, incapable of obeying God, only capable of obeying Pharaoh, only capable of following Satan, only capable of sinning. We are helpless, hopeless, and powerless in ourselves. We're not able to break free from these shackles and these chains that Pharaoh has placed upon us. We're not able to find an escape from this place of ourselves. All we can do is increase our debt, the Catechism says. That's all we can do is increase our debt. That is, all we can do is keep on sinning and sinning and sinning and failing to obey God in perfect and heartfelt love. And if we keep on sinning and sinning and sinning, then we are daily increasing our debt. And we all know about debts from our life in this world, from our life in the workplace, earning a paycheck and buying houses and cars and taking out loans and paying off those debts. And we know that if you don't pay off the debt, the debt remains there. And we know that if you keep spending, the debt gets bigger and bigger and you fall farther and farther behind and deeper and deeper into the hole of debt 
so that you feel more and more that you can never climb out of this hole. You're plunging farther and farther down. And that's all that we can do of ourselves. Because even when we do obey God in love, because we do, we do obey God and we do love God by virtue of his grace working in us, yet even then we do not love him perfectly. And he requires that we love him perfectly. The only love that we can ever give to God in this life is imperfect. And therefore we daily increase our debt Even when we do good and right and love God, our goodness and our righteousness is tainted with sin. And so we increase our debt. And we increase, then, the sufferings and punishments that we deserve. We cannot satisfy God's justice. What about paying off that debt? Do we not pay off that debt when we suffer? when we suffer pain and anguish and sorrow and disappointment and struggles in this life? Do not our sufferings amount to some kind of payment to God, some kind of atonement for the sins that we have committed? When we sin, can't we afflict ourselves? Can't we deny ourselves? Can't we bring suffering upon ourselves so that we can pay down that debt a little bit? No. The children of Israel did suffer from some of the ten plagues, the first three to be exact. They suffered from the water changed into blood and from the frogs and the lice. And the children of God, too, suffer the temporal judgments of God in this life. We have struggles and sorrows. We have sickness and pain, and ultimately we will die. We suffer the the afflictions of this present time, But those sufferings do not pay down our debt. They don't even come close to paying down that debt. Because we can only pay down that debt by suffering everlasting punishment in body and soul in hell. And we can never come to the end of that. We can never suffer that all the way to the very end and come through on the other side. It would take eternity. It would take all eternity for us to pay off our debt to God. I remember when I was a young catechism student at Southeast Protestant Reformed Church learning this Lord's Day with my pastor. And as I listened to him teaching the principle of God's justice and the necessity of satisfaction and the payment of our debts, and that the way of paying those debts is by suffering everlasting punishment in body and soul in hell. I remember asking my pastor once, but doesn't this mean that we humans can pay off our debt, but that it would just take eternity to do it? Can't we say that the answer is yes, Yes, we can satisfy the justice of God. We can pay off our debt, but it will take all eternity to do it. But we see the foolishness of that. Because if it takes all eternity to do it, then by definition, it's impossible. 
it's impossible for us to do. And not only that, but even if, hypothetically, we could suffer everlasting punishment in body and soul and come out on the other side, we would still have to render to God the perfect obedience of love. And we still cannot do that of ourselves. Can we make this satisfaction? By no means. Well, then, the next question of the Catechism is also the logical one. Because the Catechism has taught in the answer to question 12 that God will have his justice satisfied either by ourselves or by another. There is this possibility yet that another can make this satisfaction for us. So the Catechism asks, can there be found anywhere one who is a mere creature able to satisfy for us? But the answer is, none. None. Why not? Because, first of all, God will not punish any other creature for the sins which man hath committed. There are many other creatures in the universe. There are many other living creatures. If we just limit ourselves to the other living creatures in the universe, we see a whole host of plants and animals in the world. But all of those plants and animals are not rational and moral creatures. Plants and animals cannot render to God the perfect obedience of love. And not only that, God would never punish them for the sins which we have committed. And that's why the angels are also out of the question. The mighty, powerful, and glorious angels of heaven. Maybe we would think, maybe one of them can do it for us. Maybe one of them can render for us the perfect obedience of love. And indeed, they can. They are rational and moral creatures just like us. And they are able to obey God with the perfect love. But God is just. And God will not pour out his wrath on the angels for the sins that we have committed. They are a different creature. They have not committed sins against God. God will punish us for the sins which we have committed. But in the second place, the Catechism reminds us that no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. No mere creature can do that. That's not only true of all the plants and animals in the universe, but that's also true of us. We are creatures, mere creatures. We are not able to sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against even one of our sins to deliver ourselves, much less to deliver anybody else from that wrath. But not even the great angels of heaven can do it. Because even the angels are creatures, mere creatures. The angels are not gods. The angels are not almighty. The angels do not have omnipotent power 
an everlasting strength. They are creatures like us, great creatures, glorious creatures, powerful, but they're not able to bear the burden of God's eternal wrath against our sin to deliver us from it. So the question of the Catechism remains, is there then no way by which we may escape from this righteous judgment of a holy and wrathful God as we stand here on the eve of the tenth plague, as we hear God's threat to come with the angel of death and destroy all the firstborn of the land? Is there no way by which we can be again received into favor with God and enter into the promised land? What about faith? Will not God let us go free if we believe in him? Did not the Philippian jailer ask Paul and Silas that night after the earthquake in Philippi when he was about to take a sword and commit suicide because he thought the prisoners had all escaped and Paul said, don't kill yourself, we're all here. And the prisoner was shaking and trembling in fear because he had almost ended his life and plunged into hell. And he falls down before Paul and says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And did not Paul say to him, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. Yes. But the meaning of the Apostle Paul by that statement was not that God will cancel your debt without payment as long as you believe. That God will give you escape from the punishment that you deserve as long as you believe. That God will set you free from the punishment of death. And God will be pleased with you. And God will let you into heaven as long as you can find it in yourself, as long as you can work up the courage and the willpower to believe, and on the basis of your act of believing, that's not what he meant when he said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. What then about repentance? Will not God forgive our sins if we repent? Will not God allow us to escape from the punishment we deserve as long as we repent? True again. But that does not mean that God will forgive our sins without any atonement. That God will give us escape without satisfaction, without payment of the debt, without the ransom, without the shedding of blood, as long as we are sorry as long as we confess, as long as we repent. We cannot satisfy the justice of God by believing or repenting. Believing and repenting are not the basis of our salvation. 
God will have his justice satisfied. His justice must be satisfied. And we must make that satisfaction ourselves or by another. So if we look around us and if we look at ourselves and if we look at all of the creatures of the universe, visible and invisible, we can find no way of escape. We can find no way of reconciliation with God. There is none in this universe. And there we see our desperate need for God. Our absolute need for God to come and save us himself. The Catechism concludes by pointing out that there is a mediator and deliverer. There's a certain mediator and deliverer who can satisfy the justice of God for us. And that mediator and deliverer is one who is truly man, but perfectly righteous, and also more powerful than all creatures. That is, he is also truly God. Which is simply to say, there is no salvation except from God himself. God alone can save us, fallen, sinful, lost, miserable slaves to sin. God must become a man, a perfectly righteous man, to make that satisfaction for us, to do what we could not do, And this answers the great question that has been asked throughout centuries of Christian history. Why? Why did God become man? Answer, because only God could save us. But only man could make that satisfaction according to God's justice. So God became man to do it for us. And God taught the children of Israel this truth in a shadowy way on that last evening in Egypt before the tenth plague. Having labored in hard and bitter bondage under a Pharaoh who refused to let them go, who was a picture of Satan, who refuses to let us go, but holds us in chains. And after observing nine devastating plagues representing the righteous judgment of God against us for our sins, asking that troubling question, is there no way of escape? God gave the answer to Moses and Aaron in the chapter that we read. Verses 3 through 7. Speak unto the congregation of Israel, saying, In the tenth day of this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall take it and kill it in the evening. And they shall take the blood and strike it on the two side posts and the lintel of the house wherein they shall eat it. In verses 12 through 13, I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and I will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt and the blood shall 
shall be for you a token upon the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be upon you to destroy you when I smite the land of Egypt. A lamb. A perfect, spotless, precious, white lamb. Kill it. Shed its blood and strike it on the doorpost and lintel of your house and hide under the shelter of the blood. The blood. When I see the blood, I will pass over your house. By that, God was teaching his people. There is a way of escape. That way of escape is through the lamb. But of course... All of those lambs, those hundreds of lambs that were killed that night, that were roasted with fire and eaten as the first Passover feast, none of them made an actual atonement for the sins of the children of Israel. Those lambs did not give them escape from the everlasting punishment of hell. It was all a picture. It was a picture to them and to us, that God will give us his lamb, that he himself will come into the world, our shepherd, and become our lamb. Perfect, righteous, spotless, white, pure lamb. And give his own life and shed his own blood for us so that sheltered under the blood of the Lamb, we might find our escape from the righteous judgment of God and our entrance into the heavenly Canaan. Hear this word of the gospel from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 21. All things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given unto us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Amen. Our gracious and merciful God, we give all thanks and praise unto thee as we have again heard the glorious gospel. We are humbled, O God, by our weakness and powerlessness and our slavery to sin by nature. And so all glory, honor, and praise be unto thee, now and for all eternity, that thou hast provided us a lamb, that through the shedding of his blood thou hast provided us an escape. Grant unto us that we might look to him by faith, not trusting in our faith,
but trusting by faith in Christ. And as we trust in him, may we repent of our sins and turn from them that we may experience this glorious salvation.